Welcome to the Living in the Future podcast, where we bring to light specialized topics from life in the modern age. I'm talking to Tom DeRose, research manager for the Freud Museum London, the final home of Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, and his daughter, Anna Freud, a pioneering child psychoanalyst. How did Freud happen to come to London? Well, I mean, it's a, it, it's a kind of quite a long story, but uh, quite a tragic story as well. Of course, um, Freud had lived for pretty much all of his life, apart from the early few years in Vienna. Um, Freud lived in uh, Bergasse 19 um, in an apartment in Vienna uh, with his family. And it was also the centre of the psychoanalytic publishing house. And so it was really the kind of core centre for psychoanalysis. Um, but of course, uh, when the Anschluss in uh, March 1938 took place, when and when Germany invaded Austria, um, things became very difficult for for Jews in uh, Vienna. And of course, Freud was Jewish. I mean, his he had experienced a great deal of anti-Semitism throughout his life. Since 1897, Austria had had an anti-Semitic mayor who died in 1910, Karl Lueger. So it was a, a kind of notoriously quite an anti-Semitic city, but nothing on the kind of level of anti-Semitism that was to come after the Anschluss. So very quickly um, after the Anschluss in March, uh, a few a few days later, the psychoanalytic publishing house was raided by the Nazis and kind of the books were being destroyed. And his daughter, Anna, Anna Freud, then went into questioning with the Gestapo uh, a couple of weeks after that, which really kind of propelled Freud into seeking to to leave Vienna. And many people had had kind of encouraged him and suggested that he should leave. You know, that it wasn't looking good, of course, in um, in you know Germany and Austria at the time. But as an old man and as a man who was kind of very uh, stuck in his ways and, and, and very kind of ruled by habit in a way. He he really needed something extreme to happen to force him to to leave. And it was a very difficult. Uh, it was very difficult to get out as well for um, for Jews in in Austria at the time, Vienna particularly. Um, so so what happened is he through diplomatic pressure through his friend uh, Princess Marie Bonaparte and from. Uh, significant pressure as well from the uh, American ambassador to Austria, uh, William Bullitt. Um, letters from Pre President Roosevelt himself and pressure from the UK, the British government. Um, Freud was eventually kind of allowed to leave and, and uh, was given 16 exit visas for his close family, um, his housemaid uh, and various other people, his doctor. Um, it was it was a very arduous process and, and he, you know, a very kind of humiliating process, a huge amount of documentation, a huge amount of things needing to be signed and and uh, the Reich's tax, the, the payment of a certain amount of money um, to the the Nazi government. Um, but eventually he was uh, he was able to leave in June 38. Um, the, they managed to. They got a train uh, to Paris and stayed over in Paris um, with uh, Princess Marie Bonaparte at her place just outside of Paris, and then and then travelled on to to London from there. So they arrived in uh, yeah in June 1938. So that's the kind of broad circumstances around Freud leaving Vienna, Freud and the family leaving Vienna, and ending up in London. 
What happened to the Vienna offices? To the Vienna office, for, what, to, to Freud's apartment in Vienna? Yes. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, well, tragically, it's, it's overtaken. Um, it was it was appropriated by the Nazis, by the government. And then it became, for a time, a holding centre for Jewish families. I mean, many of these apartments in Vienna became these kind of holding centres uh, for Jewish families who, who were kind of, um, I guess, kind of quarantined, you know, hemmed in to these apartments, collected there um, for processing. Um, and then were later on, of course, tragically sent many of them to death camps. So, um, yeah, so it became taken over by, appropriated by the, um, by the government. And um, actually in the, in the, in the Sigmund Freud um, Museum in, in Vienna now, um, that's been fairly re recently renovated, has had a big kind of, um, big kind of curatorial makeover. They have a list on the wall going down the stairs of all of the, the uh, Jewish uh, occupants and people who were forcibly um, stationed there after Freud had left. And, and then, you know, what, what we, and, and then um, what happened to them basically. And, and, you know, obviously a vast percent, percentage of them um, ended up dying in, in death camps. So yeah, a, a really kind of tragic story for the place where Freud um, had lived all his life pretty much, well, you know, a good part of his professional life at least. And the family had been, um, it's, yeah, it's a very, a very harrowing kind of story of, of that building really. So there's a museum there now. What possessions do they have versus you have, I guess? Right, yeah. So, um, so the the museum itself in Vienna was set up in the early 70s, I think 1971, if I'm correct. Um, so yeah, in the early 70s, um, and when it was set up, it was all of Freud's collection, of course, came over to um, to London, and of course we can talk about how that happened a bit later, if you like. But um, Anna Freud, who was uh, still living in the house at, in in 20 Mersville Gardens, where the Freud Museum London now is um was contacted uh, by the people who were setting up the museum and she sent some a, a small selection of artifacts and books and various other bits and pieces um to vienna you know so th so there would be some physical objects um in in the space when it was opened but of course the vast majority of of the material of freud's possessions of his objects his books even the bookcases and furniture themselves uh, came to London and are still there. So I think, in, you know, in we in, in Vienna, you have the kind of the physical building that you associate with Freud, the bricks and mortar, really, you know, those kind of lovely Viennese staircases and the and the consulting room and, and where Freud's famous patients were treated and where kind of psychoanalysis really um, came into life, to be honest. And um, but in London, of course, you have the collection. So it's, they're, they're sure. quite different spaces. Yeah. Uh, how long did Freud live at the, uh, the house in London? Well, he lived there for about a year. So and there's so when Freud arrived in London, he didn't move into 20 Mersfield Gardens straight away. So um, the, the house had been kind of purchased, but um, there was quite uh, some work that needed to be done to it. So uh, Freud's son, uh, Ernst Freud, was a, was a modernist architect. And he did a, a he made a number of changes to the fabric of the house. So he built a, a beautiful kind of loggia 
out the back of the house and he installed a lift um, for Freud to use because the stairs had become uh, increasingly difficult for him. Various other changes that were made to the house. So so when Freud first arrived in, in London, he stayed in a house on in Ellsworthy Road, which is about a 15 minute walk from the museum now, while the uh, while Maresfield Gardens was was being adapted for him and, you know, and being set up with his collection being uh, put into place and everything. Um, and I, they moved in in uh, early September 1938 and Freud died on the 23rd of September 1939. So. It's pretty much a year they, he was in the, the actual house at Maresfield Gardens for. Who arranged the things the way they are now? You mean the, the kind of artifacts? and, and The the, artifacts, the house, the rooms, mm-hmm. the furniture, so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it. well, I mean, the, the, the core part of the house is, of course, as you'll know, Don, if you've been to London is, and seen the museum, is, um, is the study. And that's where Freud's uh, collection of antiquities is. So that uh, there was about two and a half thousand pieces in the collection overall. Um, and so it was it was mainly uh, Freud's um, housekeeper, Paula Fichtel, um, who's quite a remarkable woman, really, who'd been uh, with the Freud family for for many years in Vienna, was a kind of a very kind of faithful um, housekeeper very attached to them. She had a, 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 an incredible memory um, and could and, and, and kind of remembered, you know, where the pieces uh, were supposed to be. Um, so the idea was to kind of replicate the the, the, the the two rooms in Vienna. So there's two rooms that were, one was Freud's where the couch was and the other was a kind of where the desk space was, so the consulting room. In London, the uh, the it's it's one room, it's one, kind of one big room. But the kind of model is the same. So the idea was to to kind of replicate as close as possible um, the study uh, from Vienna to London. But of course, what's quite interesting as well is that you'll notice if you look at the 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 way that the um, that it looked in Vienna to London. Um, so just to clarify, there was a, a, a wonderful there's some wonderful black and white photos that were taken in Vienna. Um, by a photographer called um, called Engelmann, who was asked to kind of visually record, you know, the the, the study and, and Freud's and Freud's living spaces, um, with the thought that he would be leaving very soon, leaving from Vienna soon. So they wanted to capture a kind of visual document of of what things looked like there. Um, and the Gestapo were watching the apartments outside, so he wasn't able to use flash. So it was all kind of taken on this kind of rudimentary camp. But they have this wonderful um, kind of ghostly evocative um, impression these photographs um, and you can see what the, the Vienna apartment looked like then so we know what you know where everything was um, when they got to London those photographs hadn't been developed yet so they weren't able to use that as photographic kind of you know just have a look at the photo and arrange things as it was kind of thing um, but Paolo Fichtel's, Fichtel's memory I think you know and and you know, and and work with the with the family that came, you know, pretty much brought things back to how they were. But there are some clear changes, you know, some very obvious changes that um, that were made. So, for example, in Vienna, over Freud's famous couch, there was um, a painting of the of Abu Simbel in in Egypt, the tomb. Um, 
now in in London, we have a kind of a, a, a lithograph of, of Jean-Martin Charcot teaching at the Salpêtrière, a lesson on hysteria. And there were a number of similar changes like that. So Freud was a kind of curator, I think, of his own space as well as a collector. You have an exhibit coming up in which you're going to detail the relationship between various artifacts and people can go online and actually see the office as it is now, uh, their photos and the relationship between those artifacts and development of various psychoanalytic concepts. Could you talk about what will be in the exhibit and, uh, some of the concepts? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, first of all, I mean, the, the exhibition's called, uh, entitled kind of Freud's Antiquity, Object, Idea, Desire. And as you mentioned, the, the, the idea behind the exhibition really is to bring some of Freud's theories into dialogue with some of the objects from his collection. Um, and just to see kind of how they speak to each other, really, how theory and object can interrelate. Um, Freud, you know, from very early on throughout Freud's career, he often talked about the idea that a psychoanalyst is a little bit like an archaeologist, you know, so he drew this analogy between psychoanalysis and archaeology. Really in that uh, kind of an archaeologist doesn't take what they see on the ground at face value, you know, they, they dig into the earth, you know, and by digging you start to kind of uncover truths and treasure and stuff and 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 Freud kind of drew this parallel with psychoanalysis because for him psychoanalysis is not about kind of cataloging um, symptoms the things that you see you know with with uh, mental health issues that whatever those the symptom might be but it's about kind of digging into the mind and finding the causes for those symptoms and Freud changes throughout his career, the way he thinks about the relationship between archaeology and psychoanalysis. But but the parallel, you know, it, it does run through his thinking, this analogy. So that I mean, that's one of the first kind of key concepts that we we want to elaborate on in this exhibition, this, this link between archaeology and psychoanalysis. And we do that across kind of six different themes throughout the exhibition. So what we wanted to do was focus on six kind of moments in Freud's career or six kind of key topics, really. And then kind of develop on, you know, bring objects into um, into dialogue with each of those topics. So, for example, you know, the Oedipus complex, the famous kind of Oedipus complex that that, um, that Freud, I, I guess, is probably most famous for now, elaborating the notion of an Oedipus complex. So we, we've taken um, uh, Freud had an etching, a small a small print of uh, the um, Jean Auguste Dominique Angres Oedipus and Sphinx painting by you know in Vienna he had this by the couch in London it's it's by the window, so we've we brought that out on display, as well as a uh, as a as a Greek kind of water jug a hydria which has a kind of a beautiful. Um, painting of Oedipus confronting the Sphinx in this famous moment where Oedipus solves the riddle of the Sphinx. And we've, we've brought that together with the kind of theory of, the, of, of Oedipus and where Freud comes up with this notion of the Oedipus complex, why Oedipus was such an important figure 
historically at the time in, in kind of German thinking. And also really to think about what kind of what these objects can tell us about who, you know, who Oedipus was and, and, and what was the riddle and, and why there are many different solutions to this riddle. Um, so that's kind of one example of a, of, a, of a theory and some objects that kind of, you know, we're looking to interrelate. And as I said, we have, there are six different kind of stations where we, we do that with representative objects and, and theories. And the exhibit will also be online, right? So people... Right. And you have a basic catalog up now with some of the artifacts. What, from what I've read, you're going to expand that catalog? Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So the the um so to answer your first question about the digital um the 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 online thing. So part of uh, you know I was talking to you about this archaeological metaphor. Yeah, this, this archaeological analogy, and the idea of digging into something to find more resource, more meaning, whatever it might be. So the idea is that we have um, a physical exhibition, but we also have a digital archive, which is almost like the stuff that you can dig into to find out more about what's going on with this particular um, topic. So um, and in each of these topics uh, has a digital resource that contains a video, a podcast, some rotating images of the objects on display and kind of further reading and explanatory material. So it's a really kind of rich and you know resource kind of multimedia resource that for anyone who wants to really get under the surface of some of this theory and how the object and theory relate to each other you know that that's um that is a really uh, a really going to be a really powerful kind of tool and so um, to your second point don we you know there there'll be kind of 27 objects in the exhibition itself um and each of those objects will be um, elaborated on and described within both the digital archive and a, and a catalogue that we're kind of we're writing up uh, specifically for the exhibition. So, um, so basically, it works out that that each of these uh, each to each of the six topics has you know between four uh, between three and five objects that represent that theory kind of thing. What are some of the other topics beside the Oedipal complex? Mm -hmm. So it goes through. So the first, uh, the first is the um, Freud's relationship to Charcot, the uh, the famous French neurologist. And Freud studied in uh, in Paris under Charcot in 1885. Um, and Charcot was treating kind of hysteria at the at the Salpetriere in Paris. So we're looking at Freud's relationship to Charcot and thinking about how Freud moved away from a kind of iconography of symptoms and started thinking about kind of archaeology through his relationship to Charcot. So that's the first point. Then we have the, the Oedipus complex, of course, which I've just kind of described. We have another topic on dreams. Of course, Freud's you know, most famous work probably is the interpretation of dreams. So we have some objects, um, some Etruscan objects on display there. And Freud was collecting Etruscan objects, particularly after a trip to Orvieto in uh, 1897, just before he was writing the interpretation of dreams. So we're using some objects around dreams. We have a, another topic on um, on Gradiva, and Gradiva was a um, was a, a novel 
that Freud wrote an analysis of in 1907. So, and he he brought a, a kind of bas relief of of this um, of, of this walking woman, you know, um, the original of which is in the Vatican Museums in Rome. So we we have something on Godiva. And then we go a bit further on in Freud's career to kind of 1913, um, when he wrote the work Totem and Taboo. And we have uh, his uh, complete set of um, of James George Fraser's The Golden Bough, which was uh, one of the works that he drew heavily on um, in, in Totem and Taboo. And the final, uh, the final topic, the final station is on Moses, on, on Moses and uh, particularly on Moses and monotheism, his, his final work. And to, to talk about Moses, the, the main object in that is the family Bible, um, the Philipson Bible, as it's known, um, which is a kind of beautiful, oversized, kind of very well illustrated and annotated version of the Bible, which is which was in both in Hebrew and in German. So it's almost like an encyclopedia, really, that, that Freud kind of, you know, talks about in his autobiography, in one of his autobiographies, of, of, of something that had a real influence on him when he was younger, reading the Philipson Bible, you know. So so that's the, um, yeah, that's the final point. So Freud and Moses and, and, and the Bible. Does he have any uh, artifacts from the Akhenaten period uh, of uh, Egypt uh, to uh, to go along with Moses and monotheism? Yeah, there is um there is a, a, a sculpture, a small kind of bronze piece of uh, Amun Re um, from uh, it's not from the Akhenaten period, but it's representing uh, Amun Re from that period. So. Um, I think it's a little later than than the period okay. itself, but but it's you know in that kind of it, that that is there as a kind of representative of, of the kind of that syncretic uh, divinity Amon Ra. So has anybody done a total because a total inventory of all the artifacts and uh, maybe not origins but maybe authenticity or, or just validity and you know a cataloging of everything um the, I, most of it i, th I think it, that it, to to a, on a rudimentary scale yeah, that has kind of taken place i mean when we became an, uh, a museum in 1986 there was a kind of big audit of freud's uh, collection um much of it is i mean freud i think he was quite fortunate in a way um when he was collecting because um much of the collection is is kind of original and genuine there are one or two uh, forgeries i guess that's probably <laughs> where we wanted to go with this really so um and but, but, I, not I mean, to focus on the forgeries but just right, I, right. I couldn't ass i i had to assume there must have been one or two and oh, and just just the interest of the the sum of the total collection and what it means and just an analysis of that mm -hmm. well um as i was saying i mean freud the collection is you know is of kind of uh it, it it's a good quality collection i mean that's that's the, the opinion of of uh experts in the field you know it's it's a better than average kind of um kind of collection in, in the fact that most of it as i said is kind of authentic and original i mean freud freud was he had some very good friends so you know he had um he was friends with the uh, curator at the kunsthistorische museum 
in um, in Vienna, um, uh, Dr. Julius Banco, who who authenticated you know some of his more important pieces. So we we still have the authentication notes uh, that Ban Banco drew up. You know, one of the as I mentioned, one of the objects in um, in the exhibition is this kind of water jug. This uh, that represents Oedipus and the Sphinx. Very beautiful kind of Greek hydria from from kind of you know high period in Athens. Um, and that we have an authentication note from uh, uh, for that particular object and and kind of and dozens of others. Um, so and he also had a very good friend. Uh, who was a very well-respected art historian, archaeologist uh, called Emmanuel Lurie, um, who had been a long-term friend of his, who was an expert in antiquities. So I think if he was looking to purchase something, he had people there to kind of to verify things for him and to give him advice. Um, he had a good eye himself as well, I think, but there were, of course, things that slipped through the net. So, for example, there's a, a really a lovely... Kind of wooden uh, um, falcon-headed figure that you may have seen when you were here. It's 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 quite a large piece, and if you're going into the study as you turn left, it's on the left-hand side in a cabinet. You wouldn't necessarily notice it unless you were looking for it. But but that's that, for example, is a 19th-century forgery, um, and there are others dotted around. But I think you know it 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 was a it was a strange time really. I mean after Heinrich Schliemann and, and Arthur Evans, you know, had kind of discovered, as it were, <laughs> Troy and 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 Mycenae, which were obviously not what they had thought they were. Um, after that, you know, th there was this proliferation of antiquities and stuff on the market, you know, and you could pick things up in junk shops and and as well as antique shops, and but of course that also encourages kind of uh you know the this kind of kind of all of these replicas being produced as well but i i think it, i mean it looks as if from the audits that have been done that that, he, that freud was you know pretty fortunate or, or you know pretty wise in his choice of pieces has anybody done an analysis of what the collection is mostly figures mostly human figures mostly um animal figures, uh, what countries, is it mostly Egypt, mostly Greece, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there has been a fair amount of, of a few publications on, on Freud's collection that talk about the kind of, um, so I mean, as far as origin goes, most of it's obviously from Egypt, Greece and Rome. Um, there are some other pieces uh, that are quite interesting, you know, there's a there's certain pieces from kind of Bali, from Indonesia. Um, there are pieces from Mesoamerica. Uh, there are, you know, so there, there is a there's some Iranian uh, Luristan fig, um, shapes. So there are there are quite a few of you know different kind of representations of different areas of kind of Syrian, you know, Mesopotamian votive offering, which is going to be to Ishtar, which is also going to be in the in the exhibition. Um, so there, 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 there is a kind of, you know, it, it's not solely kind of Greek, Egyptian, Roman, but that that takes up the majority of the collection. Um, I, I think, I'm probably, I'm talking off the top of my head actually, quite anecdotally here, but I, I would say that, that the major, you know, there, there are there are quite a number of, of 
figurines um, and and vases. You know, that that's the kind of main thing. But I, you know, I'm not. I wouldn't be able to comment on the kind of specifics of, you know, the categories sure. of the collection. It's quite a wide-ranging collection. You know, there's also kind of um, tablets with hieroglyphs and and uh, fresco pieces of pieces of um, you know, of, of mosaic and things. So there's there's it's quite a it's quite a Catholic with a small C <laughs> collection in a way. But but of course the other thing that that's interesting about Freud is his his library as well that that, that came over from from Vienna you know and even his very bookcases themselves came over from Vienna so I mean we're very fortunate in the fact that in the museum we have Freud's books on the shelves and and you know there are there are more as he said himself he, he'd read more on archaeology um, than he had on psychology so you know you can see that this is a abiding passion for him you know and something that that you know is, is a very very important part of his life and and I guess, you know, the last point on that is something that's very curious that I've often wondered about is the fact that the, all of these objects, they're only in his workspace. You know, so they're only in the study. There's all these, you know, a couple of thousand objects or so, all in the study, but not in his living spaces, not in his bedroom, not in the dining room, nowhere like that. And it was the same in Vienna. So they were obviously very important for what was going on in the analytic session, in the workplace, in the place where Freud was working. I think that's quite a remarkable thing, really. The books are in the living space, right? Well, the study in uh, in Maysfield Gardens that we have now is, is a bit different to where um, to how things were in Vienna. So, okay. so it was so that that area now is all, you know, would have been where where Freud was practicing. So his bedroom was upstairs. We, it's the only part of the house that we have now in London, which is as it was back then, basically. Um, but it but it's pr- prim- primarily a workspace. And and if you think, when Freud was only seeing four patients in London. You know, he was a very old man. He was he was very afflicted. He had cancer of the jaw. He was in the last stages of his life. And towards the end of his life, he had a bed made up in the study. You know, so it became so then he, the personal space and the and the kind of workspace kind of conjoined. But throughout his life, he was either treating patients or writing, you know, in, his, in the majority of his time. But there's really a clear, you know, even, even though you think Freud, someone like Freud didn't wasn't really ever switched off from work, I guess. But but there is a kind of clear um, statement, I think, in that the fact of this area is where we do psychoanalysis. This is where all of the collection is. You know, this is where the books are and stuff. And the rest of the house is. It doesn't happen there. Sort of the archaeology to help with the archaeology of. Uh, something like that. Well, I think so. I mean, you, you have you have accounts from some of his patients, like uh, like the patient, the poet H.D., um, who talks about, you know, Freud, you know, using you know these objects helping him to stabilize his thought almost so and also the way that he illustrates things to his patients by referring to the objects so for example uh, Freud's famous patient the rat man um, he talks Freud talks to Pompey uh, about Pompey to him and he says look you know look at the objects on this desk you know when they're in the ground, you know, when they're buried, they're like the unconscious, they're preserved, you know, nothing's disturbing them. 
as soon as they're brought out into the open, as soon as, you know, by analogy, as soon as these things become conscious, then, you know, they start to become worn away. Yeah, like, so they start to physically deteriorate. So, you know, and then he's, he uses this lovely phrase that, for, you know, Pompeii, the destruction of Pompeii only really occurred after it was dug up, you see. So you can see throughout his work that he's continually using, deploying, you know, these things on, on the desk, these things on the walls, these objects, these gods, yeah, to help kind of explain or, or kind of uh, maybe not even explain, but to help kind of to help capture the imagination almost of, you know, the person on the couch, you know, to start them, to start the sparks of thought, perhaps. That's absolutely fascinating. And I don't think many people are, when they think of psychoanalysis, I don't think they think of uh, ancient artifacts as, right. as guide points. Well, I mean, can I just come in there, actually, Don? Sure. You know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, you think nowadays of a, that classic kind of New York apartment, you know, where you do analysis or or in England, you know, on in, in kind of on the NHS. Whatever, you think of a white cube, don't you? A doctor space, you know, where you think of you don't want anything that's going to distract from the patient's free association. Yeah. Right. You don't want anything that's going to get in the way of their personal material and stuff but yeah you go into the study in Freud's room it's surrounded by antiquities and and you know then you start to think Freud has this obviously this imperative to say whatever comes to your head you know free associate you know and it should all be coming from inside you you know it should all just be and it should be you shouldn't be scared of 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 saying something you know just let it out kind of thing however it comes out is great but also that you almost feel like these things around him, these objects as well, are also help trying to help somehow that process, I think. It's a really interesting idea. And is it helping Freud? Is it helping the patient? Is it, you know, what are they there for? You, you can't ignore the fact that they're there and they're clearly taking an active role in the work. It's... Because, hmm. It's almost like, and and I I hope this isn't too much of a stretch, but like no. a ritual space. I, well, I mean, you think of the analytic hour. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. a, there are, there are certain rituals that, that go on. I think that's that that's perfectly accurate, really. I mean, that you come in, you you know, there are there there are set formulas that you go through, aren't there? Yeah. You lay in a certain space, you talk in a sort of certain way. Perhaps they do help create that that sense of kind of of ritual. I mean, there's a sense of kind of deep time, isn't there, I guess, and deep past, you know, in in those kind of antiquities. And and I guess that you, you might think about going back and thinking about, you know, the early ages, things that have happened to you, perhaps. Um, they're certainly there for a reason and they certainly they certainly help the process, you know, from whichever position. So, yeah, I, I think the idea of ritual is is. It's quite an important one in psychoanalysis. There's even Freud writes papers on the kind of technique of, you know, of psychoanalysis and that kind of. And you and you sometimes feel it is a kind of, you know, contemporary ritual, really. The museum isn't just dedicated to Freud. It's also has exhibits from other family members. Uh, when I was there, there was a Lucian Freud exhibit. Yeah. Um, uh, there's also rooms dedicated to Anna Freud. Mm. Um, 
can you talk about uh, what areas are dedicated to other family members? And I mean, I think the thing that, that we, as as a Freud museum, we describe ourselves as as the final home of Sigmund Freud and his daughter Anna Freud, uh, you know, who was a, a pioneering child psychoanalyst. And I think that you know. I think Anna Freud is is a kind of representative of, of the Freud family, really the, the person that she was so important for Freud, um, you know, cared for him, was his youngest daughter. And also, in a way, kind of carried on the, the kind of tradition of psychoanalysis in, in a specific way. You know, she, she became, a, as I said, a child psychoanalyst and, and an educator. Um, so she really um, she really carried on psychoanalysis and she lived there, of course, until she died in 1982. So um, we have, when Anna died, she uh, she left in her will her, the desire that the museum, that the house would be turned into a museum dedicated to her father. But of course, we have, you know, specific spaces dedicated to the life and work of Anna Freud, um, you know, celebrating her importance in that story, really. We also have, you know, we're one of the few buildings in uh, in London to have two blue plaques on the front of the house. So like a blue plaque in London, I'm sure you know this, but um, you you know you see these houses for people, listeners who don't who haven't seen this before in in the UK. You know you often see these blue plaques on houses where famous people lived. You know, so we have one of course for Sigmund Freud but on our front on on the front of the house, but we also have one for Anna Freud. So and I think that's really testament to the importance of Anna Freud in the story, not just of of psychoanalysis and and that familial story um, of Freud and his you know him coming to London, but also in the history of the house and in the history of, of the life and the and, and the heartbeat of of kind of psychoanalysis in that area because Anna Freud also practiced yet she had a kind of nursery uh, down the road from Mersfield Gardens that then became the Anna Freud Centre which has since uh, moved to King's Cross. Um, so she had a really important kind of role in that area and in in the house, and of course as Freud's um, daughter. Um, so I think Anna is the key. And we, we also talk about you know some of you know Freud's uh, wife, of course Martha, and her, his sister-in-law Minna, who who both lived here after Freud had died in '39. Dorothy Burlingham, who was Anna's um, companion. Um, so there's many stories that go on beyond just, you know, the patriarch of the of the house, Sigmund. Um, Lucian Freud, of course, um, was one of, uh, you know, died fairly recently, the great artist. It was a centenary um, exhibition. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we've recently had an exhibition on Lucian, which uh, just has just finished. Um, but it, I think it's important to say that the Freud family are not directly now involved in the running of the house. Um, and also we're a, we're run by a board of trustees. We're also an independent um, charity. So unlike the museum in Vienna, we're not state funded. So we don't get um, funds from the UK government. We're, 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 we're an independent charity. So um, so whilst we do have relations with um, the living um, descendants of Freud, they don't have a, an active involvement per se in the in the in the house itself, apart from the fact that uh, Lord David Freud is the museum's president, so um, so so yes, it's um it, we don't we don't just like to we're, we're not just a house about Sigmund. Um, we also think about 
the, uh, about Anna, the family, and of course the legacy of psychoanalysis itself. What other programs do you have besides the museum? I understand you have education programs. Uh, there's a Lacan uh, lecture coming up, from what I understand. Yes, yeah, so we we have a, a wide range of um, of programs uh, f that are run through the exhibition uh, through the museum. So. Um, we we have a, an education program, as you mentioned. So um, we have uh, school groups, university groups, postgraduate groups, um, and public groups who can come in and, and have kind of specific kind of tours and lectures, bespoke um, programs for different groups like that. We we have a, a thriving kind of public program. You mentioned a, a kind of a Lacanian lecture. We have um, we we have a kind of very we cover a broad range of of theoretical positions really in in, um, in in the way that we engage with psychoanalysis today. So part of it is kind of, you know, from that Freudian tradition and thinking about that, you know, Freud's influence, but also about kind of psychoanalysis today and thinking about the different ways in which different schools of psychoanalysis engage with Freud's ideas and, and how clinical practice might differ um, in certain ways. So, you know, you mentioned Lacan and uh, so of course Melanie Klein and Anna Freud and and, uh, and Winnicott, you know, all of these important figures in the history of psychoanalysis. We 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 tend to keep a we're quite a broad church in that way. Um, so we keep a we keep um we we're not af affiliated to a particular theoretical position in the field of psychoanalysis. Um, but we are we you know we see ourselves as kind of educational. Um, uh, disseminator and, and a place for discussion really for, for, for different positions so um, we also have a, a you know a, a, a thriving kind of membership scheme so we have lots of events that are specifically for members we're, we're a site for private hire um, and you know I'm trying to think what else lots of things go on <laughs> there's loads of things I can hardly remember them conferences courses podcasts symposia you name it we do it basically <laughs> what, again when will the new exhibit reach and where can people find information about it right well um the new exhibit is opening on the 25th of february um it's running till the 16th of july so it's a, you know it's a fairly uh, good long period of time you can find out about it on our website www.freud.org.uk um, as i mentioned there is a physical exhibition that you can you know which would be great to come and uh, see some of these objects in their in in their material in their materiality um, and also kind of engage with the house itself but we are we're also mindful of the fact that not everyone can get to london in the next five months so we have this comprehensive digital archive that we're working on at the moment and that will be released um, at the same time. So that's again the 25th of February, um, just in a few weeks now. So um, do, you know, I suggest for people to do, um, do check out our website for further updates and stuff and all of that, all of the digital archive material will also be available free of charge as well for people. So that's, um, as I said, podcasts, videos, um, text, ro rotating photographs that really kind of attempt to kind of get under the skin and, and get under the um, build up those connections, you know, those quite surprising connections, as you said, Don, between that kind of archaeology and those figurines and the development, of the concepts and methods of psychoanalysis, you know, 
it's um it's it's a it's a surprising uh, analogy it's a surprising connection but um i i think that once people start kind of you know burrowing into it a bit it, it, it tends to it starts to make sense really why freud would would be so um would have that you know, kind of connection to archaeology thank you very much and it's been wonderful talking to you you're very welcome don cheers thank you